Proverbs 5, verse 1 through 4. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen closely to my understanding, so that you may maintain discretion and your lips safeguard knowledge. Though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she is, a bitter, she is as bitter as a wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Proverbs 5, 15 through 18. Drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams in the public squares? They should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Parents, if you'd like your children to be dismissed, now is the time to dismiss to Children's Church. As Justin said, they're welcome to stay as well. That's, that's your decision. Moises, thank you guys for, for leading us in worship, brother. I appreciate you guys leading from the front. I will say, uh, getting to sit in the front, one advantage is I get the ocean of, of voices uh, singing to our Savior, um, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. So my heart is, is ready for this morning. I hope yours is too. Um, I've had versions of this question all week, and I'll be honest, I've asked it myself, why this topic, right? Why Proverbs 5? There are 31 chapters in Proverbs to cover. Uh, why would we land in, in Proverbs 5? Well, well, first, I mean, obviously, because Proverbs 5 is in the Bible, all right? Uh, that's reason enough uh, to, to read it, to uh, hear God's voice from it, to preach on it. Um, but I'm convinced also that there's, there are specific reasons the Lord has brought us uh, to this text. Um, because in uh, our sexuality, right, are our deepest wants and our deepest wounds, and because this room is full of sexual brokenness, we need God's word from Proverbs 5. These seats are, are filled. As your pastor, I'm not unaware that these seats are filled with sexual brokenness. Some of you have been sinned against sexually. Others have committed acts they regret or would prefer not to think about again. Many of you have experienced some combination of both. And I want to say that at the outset, because whatever baggage you're bringing into the room this morning, I want you to know two things. First, you are not alone. And second, you are not past hope. Proverbs 5 is a wonderful announcement that God is not ignorant to our plight, and the Bible mercifully does not ignore the bedroom. So remember that Solomon here is writing uh, advice, counsel, wisdom to his son. Right? So that's the, that's the literary context we've got here, is Solomon's advice to his son. Um, Solomon himself, if you remember, was the product of what began as essentially sexual assault, as King David summoned Bathsheba to his bedchambers. He's also not naive. Solomon famously had uh, perhaps hundreds of partners in his life, and he's seen all of the collateral damage that has come with that. So he's not speaking out of naivete here, right? He's trying to help his son avoid some of his mistakes and walk wisely when it comes to his own sexuality. And while the literary framework, like I said, of the book of Solomon is speaking to his son, I think this passage has many applications, not just for young men, but for men and women of all ages. 
in every background. Because what Solomon is driving at here is not just 10 tips for a better relationship or five things you can do and five things you can't do in the bedroom. Right? Solomon is driving at deeper questions. He's pointing us to the, the bigger question that so many of us, with all the noise that surrounds us, often fail to ask, which is, what does sex mean? Now, I can see some of you already, you're like, wow, that's such a pastor question, right? It doesn't mean anything, right? I mean, it's, it's a physical desire, it's an appetite, it's a means to an end. Or if you run in other circles, you say, well, the answer's obvious, sex is for procreation, right? That's why God gave it to us, full stop. Pastor, please stop talking, right? Uh, depending on where you come from, uh, those are kind of the two backgrounds we tend to bring. Neither one of them asked the deeper question that Solomon is looking to answer for his son, which is, what is it for? What does it mean? And without an answer to that question, all those other tertiary questions are irrelevant, right? We don't need 10 tips, right? We don't need five, a list of five things you should and five things you should not do. Before we get to any of that, we have to answer this question. That's why Solomon starts here with his answer in his, uh, to his son. So Solomon wants us to see that this naivete in regards to sex is the root that bears so much bad fruit around us. I've been helped by Pastor Timothy Keller's uh, framework here. Uh, and he says that really we, we sin or we, we, uh, we sin and we see sex sinfully in two different ways. One is that we overvalue it. Um, two is that we over, overvalue it. So we've got undervalue and overvalue, right? As two kind of polar categories of how we approach sex wrongly. Um, and then I would argue that there's probably a third category, which is kind of we oscillate between both, right, on a given day. Um, but I, I think that's helpful. And so what we're going to look at today through the lens of Proverbs 5 is first how we undervalue sex, second how we overvalue sex, and then finally we're going to close by seeing what can we do about it, right? How do we approach physical intimacy rightly? So let's start here. Uh, first, we undervalue physical intimacy by ignoring its beauty. We undervalue it by ignoring its beauty. What I mean here is just as Christians are not called to be prudes. Right? Our calling as believers is not one of prudishness, right? Not one of plugging our ears and saying na 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 and pretending it doesn't exist. Right? This is not the Christian answer to sexuality. You see this pretty clearly throughout Proverbs 5, which is that the Bible reflects a high view of sexuality and marriage. Right? So among church people, you get this weird refrain, right? which is that sex is gross and disgusting, so save it for the one you love. Right? And it's just like, what? This is not Solomon's perspective. I'm going to read this verse without much of the comment other than that this is in the Bible. Uh, Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. Let your fountain be blessed. Take pleasure in the wife of your youth. A loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. This is here because sex is God's idea. He is not scared or shy. You see this in Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them after he creates the man and the woman, and he said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls the earth. So you see here, Genesis 1 is before Genesis 3, right? Sin comes into the world in Genesis 3. God's blessing in Genesis 1 is before that. God created physical intimacy between a man and a wife as a good gift, and he gives it to them as a blessing. You see it further in Genesis 2, 24. This is why 
a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So we've got special revelation in the scriptures that shows us that God created sexuality as a good gift. But we've also got just natural revelation, right? Like It doesn't take a believer reading the Bible to get this. It gives us deeper understanding of it. But what does it say about God that our bodies themselves were created with receptors and endorphins that are fired purely for the purpose of our enjoyment? There's a good God giving us good gifts, gifts that we should acknowledge and thank him for, not hide from. One more verse for you, again, without further comment, other than this is in the Bible. Um, I, this is, I'm getting all the uncomfortable stuff out of the way first, just so you can go ahead and settle in. Um, Song of Songs 5.1. I have come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather with myrrh my spices. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. Eat, friends. Drink. Be intoxicated with caresses. This is not clinical language. Right? The writer of Song of Songs is not saying, honey, procreation time again. Right? There is a passion here. Right? There is a creativity here under Song of Songs, right? If the Bible itself is too provocative or too passionate for us, it may be time to reorient ourselves to the meaning of sex. Right? If the Bible's passion is too provocative for us, it may be time to reorient our own view of sex and sexuality. But notice that all of this is in the context of a covenant, right? In Proverbs five fifteen. Uh, Solomon advises his son, drink water from your own cistern, water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams, in the public squares, they should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. His point here, right, is that water is a good thing, right? If you have a well, it's, good, it's a good thing to go and get water for the day, and yet water can also cause great damage, right? If it loses its, uh, the, its purpose, right, its container, it can flood. In the same way, this was created for a good thing, and yet because of sin, because of the fall, it can also cause great damage. Right? It's the same example of a fireplace, right? Or a fire. Fire's great in the fireplace. You've probably heard this before, but you try to bring it into the living room, it doesn't go as well, right? Same way here. Solomon doesn't hand his son um, a, a book right, and say, okay, good luck, read this, and ask your mom if you have any questions. Right? <laughs> He gives his son a, a glorious vision of what physical intimacy can be in the context of marital love. And so he's not scared of these questions. He's not saying, good luck, hope you did better than I did, right? He's giving him a, a grand vision of what this can be. And he's connecting it to his creator. This is a, a cosmic vision for his son's sexuality. When I say in the context of, of marital love, I, I love Tim Keller's definition here. He says, marital love, marriage, is a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. And he gives a couple of purposes for it. To reflect the saving love of Christ, to refine our character, to create a stable community for children, and to accomplish all of this by bringing complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. That's a mouthful, but I think it gives, it, it touches on, right, that grand vision for what intimacy can be. So yes, parents, we must speak wisely. We must speak with dignity and with prudence, depending on the child's age and maturity level, right? But Solomon's approach to a sexually saturated culture is not to put his fingers in his son's ears and tell him not to think about that. Instead, it's to help guide him 
toward the path of life and warn him away from the path of death. So let me encourage you, begin this conversation early with your kids. If you need resources, we have those for you. But honestly, it doesn't begin with finding the perfect resource or the perfect book, right? Or the perfect conversation opener. Use wisdom, gather information, but it begins with you buying an ice cream cone and understanding your, helping your child to understand they can trust you. Right? Building, a, building that relationship, building that trust, and just opening the door to a continuing conversation. This is not a one-time deal, right? This is a continual discipleship of our children, of our teenagers. Someone will shape your kid's theology of sex, fight through the awkwardness, and take your role as parent and as guide. So if we undervalue sex by ignoring its beauty, we overvalue it. I'm sorry, we're still in undervalue. Let me try it. If we undervalue sex by ignoring its beauty, we, still, we also undervalue it by treating it as a product to consume. We also undervalue it by treating it as a product to consume. In other words, we approach it to commodify it rather than commit to it. We approach it to commodify it rather than to commit to it. I just gave myself away as an English major. Commodify, all right? That's a fancy word. Let me explain it using um, Chinese food because I love Chinese food. Chris Baker is my Chinese buddy, and um, we, uh, we, we enjoy some good Chinese buffets together. But when I go to the Chinese buffet, right, I have to understand, like, this is not Chinese food. Right? This is a commodified version of Chinese food. Um, so it's a, it's a version of Chinese food that um, is like a loosely based on actual right, Chinese food in some way. Um, but it's also created to give me the experience of eating something ethnic while also being tailored to my American palate. And while also being using ingredients right, that are cheaper to find here so the business owner can make money off of my desire to eat something ethnic while also having an American palate. Right? So it's commodified. Right? It's, a, it's a new thing that is loosely based on the other thing, but in reality, isn't really that thing. Right? If I wanted commitment Chinese food, that would require me to befriend a Chinese family, right? earn their trust, get to know them well enough that they invite me to their table. And I would have to come to that table expecting my mouth to be lit on fire, right? And also expecting there to be some tastes and ingredients and creatures that I wasn't anticipating eating, right? <laughs> but because of my commitment to and love for these people and their love for me to share this and their trust in me that I'm not going to make fun of and say, what the heck is that, right? There's a mutual commitment there that I'm going to get real, authentic, not commodified Chinese food, right? But those are two different things, two very different things, right? They're really not even the same cuisine when you put them next to each other. Maybe you can see some semblance, right? some resemblance, but we both know those aren't the same. So again, I'm not commenting on the morality of Chinese buffets here, but in our approach to sex and relationships, right, we commodify them. We expect to be consumers. We tell the other, you adjust to my needs and my desires. Right? This is about my palate and my tastes. While we wouldn't say it, we treat our partners and eventually even our spouses oftentimes as primarily given to make us happy and accommodate to our needs, as though they are a product and we are a consumer. But we see in Proverbs chapter 5, when we abstract sex from a person, we undercut its very meaning. So in verse 3 of Proverbs 5, Solomon uh, tells his son, Though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she's as bitter as wormwood, 
and as sharp as a double-edged sword. So the forbidden woman here, or the wayward woman, right, is a literary device, right? In other words, she's a category. There's not, I don't, I don't think at least, there's a real, like, physical woman this Solomon is talking about. He's warning his son against this category, right? That is some kind of relationship outside of a marriage covenant, some kind of sexual relationship that's not in the marriage covenant, right? And because she could be anyone, she's actually also no one. Right? She's not a, a person, a human. She's a category of people. And what Solomon's driving at here, I think, is that as we approach sexuality as though it can be abstracted and taken from commitment and covenant, we undervalue it and we dehumanize the person across from us. It makes it transactional and purely physical. Just like we could pay for a good steak or a nice roller coaster, hopefully not with money, but we expect our relationships to work the same way, right? I, I get what I want. The clearest example of this kind of thinking in the Old Testament is the, the temple prostitute system, right? The cult prostitutes where you would go and find a, a partner, it didn't matter who it was, but you would essentially use that encounter to manipulate the gods to get what you wanted, Right, so he'd use that encounter. I get something out of it. I enjoy it. But also, it's a gift to the fertility god to make the plants grow too. These two things are connected. So just like I want my plants to grow, so too do I want this encounter. Those are based on the same desire, which is I want food in my belly and I want to be satisfied. This is the Old Testament example that continues to come up for Israel as they're tempted. Right, is to idolize sexuality in this way. We don't have those, at least in that form, but the, the clearest modern example of this is, is probably the pornography industry. You've all heard the statistics on pornography use, right? According to Covenant Eyes, in a room like this, about six out of ten men and two out of ten women would have uh, watched pornography in the past month. It is truly a, an epidemic. And the church is far from immune from this epidemic. And I think it's important to, to note, according to Proverbs 5, what we're seeing here is that the problem of porn isn't just that it makes us impure or ashamed. It certainly does that, right? It certainly does dishonor God. We, I don't want to dismiss that. But just as importantly, the problem of porn is that it takes someone made in the image of God and dehumanizes and turns them into a product to consume. So yes, it does bring shame. Yes, it does dishonor God. But ultimately, just as importantly, it turns the sexual act into a commodity. It commodifies it. It is, at its core, dehumanizing. Both of those who participate in the industry and those who participate as its consumers. The research shows, you've probably heard this before, that pornography is as addicting as many illegal drugs. Right? It rewires the brain in similar ways. And this is because our brains are meant to work one way, right? And when we begin to train them to work another way, right, there's a lot to untangle there. And while men are statistically more likely to view pornography regularly, viewership among women continues to, to climb rapidly. Our culture is steeped in this, right? We need to be clear about the danger, but we also need to be clear about what I said earlier. When it comes to pornography, one... I hope those statistics are they're meant to show you, one, you are not alone. Right? In a room this size, there are, I'm well aware, right, there are multiple people, probably not just multiple, but there's probably a majority of people 
who have some kind of history, if not current, activity in uh, pornographic addiction. But you are not alone and you are not past hope. In a room this size, we also have a myriad of people who can testify to God's power as these things are brought to light, as help is sought, right? You cannot do it alone. You're not meant to do it alone. But as you seek help, as you ask for help, as you bring darkness into light, there is victory to be found. There is sanctification to be had. There are stories upon stories that we can share with you as an encouragement privately of people who have found victory in this area. But I know of no one, I'll be honest with you, I know of no one who says, yes, I found victory here. I've seen progress in sanctification, but I did it by gritting my teeth and I did it alone without telling anyone else. So let me encourage you. If this is a battle you are fighting, or maybe it's not yet a battle you're fighting, you're just stuck, but you'd like to make it a battle you're fighting, find someone whether it's me or Justin or Moises or Caitlin or Sandra, someone you trust, bring that, right? And we will walk alongside you. I can give you my personal assurance that while you are wrestling in shame now, you will experience grace and receive help and nothing else. We undervalue sex when we commodify it, when we treat it as a product so that's how we undervalue it. But surprisingly enough, you might be surprised, given our current culture and how we're saturated, we can also overvalue sexuality. We can also overvalue physical intimacy. One way we do this is by using it for self-expression, right? using it to, to build our identities around. Americans, man, we love the idea of a journey of self-discovery. Right? We just love this concept. We're drawn to it. And we're tempted to treat sex in this way, that it can be an avenue through which we find out something about ourselves, right? We express ourselves in a new and fresh way. But listen to Solomon's counsel to his son in verse 20. Proverbs 5.20, he says, Why, my son, would you lose yourself with a forbidden woman or embrace a wayward woman? He says, actually, the opposite happens. When you seek to express yourself through your sexuality, define yourself by it, but actually, it's not capable of holding that up. Right? It's not strong enough to hold the foundation of your selfhood and your personhood. It's important. It's not unimportant. Right? He's, he's clear about that. It's not something to dismiss. But it's also not something that can uphold you and define you. So if undervaluing physical intimacy dehumanizes the other person, overvaluing physical intimacy dehumanizes ourselves. It treats ourselves as less than humans, as though we can be defined by this part of ourselves. Our culture says you are your sexuality and that your feelings and your past define you. But thankfully, God says that sexual attractions, temptations, and your past are not the most significant thing about you. They do not define who you are. According to Scripture, again, I want to be clear, they are not irrelevant, and they're certainly not something to be hidden away. Right? The Bible would never encourage you to hide those things about yourself, to not speak of them, right? to not uh, seek help, seek counsel, seek advice. All of those things are encouragements. Again, we see Solomon is building that relationship with his son. He's not telling his son, I don't want to know these, this, 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 and this about you. Keep that hidden away. Certainly not. They are important enough for him to address. But may we not swing the pendulum the other way and see them as transcendent. They are not irrelevant, not something to be hidden away, but neither are they your deepest or truest self. Colossians, as a matter of fact, tells us 
that you have died and your life is hidden. If you are in Christ, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Yourself is hidden with Christ in God. No one can take that. That is a foundation worth building on. We are united to and one with Christ. The definition of our personhood is expressed through our relationship with and unity to Him. And this is good news because building on any other foundation is a foundation of sin. That could crumble at any moment. Everything else can change, right? How I'm feeling that day, what I'm attracted to that day, that thing wanes and waxes depending on the season. But Christ does not wax and wane. He is a steady anchor for our souls. The world around us tempts us to see our sexual freedom as a means of self-expression. And to be clear, we can throw lobs at the world. The church, we also do this in our own way, don't we? We've unintentionally tried to use our self-defined sexual purity as a means of self-expression. In other words, we try to define ourselves based on purity or impurity rather than the foundation that cannot cave, which is Christ. Some of the uh, consequences of this, I heard one pastor tell a story once that he uh, met a a lost young woman and he invited her to what he was assuming was an evangelistic uh, meeting where the, the pastor would give an evangelistic message. That's how it was advertised. And so he said, that's a great, this is where she goes to church, I'll go with her to that and this will be a great opportunity to open up the conversation. And it turned out that this was a, a purity talk and it was kind of the worst like Christian subculture mess of this, right? Which is to say the pastor took a rose at the beginning of his talk and handed it to someone on the front row and asked them to all pass around the rose. And as he gave kind of a sub-Christian talk on purity, his grand finale was to ask for the rose back and present it. And of course, it's beaten and battered. It's been passed around. It's missing petals, broken in half, no leaves left. And his grand finale is to raise it up and ask the question, who would ever want this rose? So stay pure and define yourself by that. And if you don't, then the definition of yourself changes, right? You are now impure. You are now unworthy. I hope as I I said that and I asked that question, who would ever want this rose? The first response immediately, I would hope at Grace Church, would be Jesus would want that rose. That's the foundation of our faith. It's Jesus who called Matthew the tax collector. It's Jesus who sought out the adulterous woman at the well. It's Jesus who leaves the 99 sheep to go and find the one who is wayward. And it is Jesus who has made a stunning table centerpiece of this room of broken roses. Jesus wants you. Jesus does not look at you and see your past, your desires, or your temptations. Jesus looks and sees the person he created, and if you were in Christ, the person he recreated. My friends, this is Christianity, not defining ourselves by any other category other than I am in Christ. I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. Insofar as we seek to use our sexuality for self-expression, even in some pseudo-righteous way, when we put that to death, who we are comes from Jesus. So if we overvalue it for self-expression, we also overvalue it insofar as We expect it to meet all of our relational and all of our emotional needs. We overvalue sex by expecting it to meet all of our relational and all of our emotional needs. I'm going to read Proverbs 11.22, and I'm going to tread carefully here. Proverbs 11.22 says, A beautiful woman who rejects good sense is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. 
And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wade in the shallow end and put my toe in here. Uh, I, I don't think, so a lot's happening here, but not very much is happening here, right? The point of uh, the proverb is this. We tend to look at something and say, ooh, shiny, and try to grab it, right? What we see is immediately shiny and attractive. It's like the gold ring. But what's more important even than what is shiny and initially catches our attention is what is behind the gold ring. So just as we might see a gold ring and want to pick it up, what's behind it is just as important and we should pay just as much attention to, if not more. Again, Solomon is speaking to his son, but the meaning applies to us all. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That is, we go hunting for the outward, right? We're looking for the most beautiful or the richest or the suavest or the flirtiest. We, we go hunting for all these outward things, all these gold rings, ignoring what is behind the outward, the character, the fruits of the Spirit, the Christ-likeness. May we not be so attracted to the gold rings that surround us that we miss that which is behind them and that which is more important. And this counsel isn't just limited to those who are, who are dating. Right? I'm not picking on the, the singles who are in the market right now. Um, this, is, this is true of all of us, and it's, it's even true when we come to marriage. right? And We expect good gifts like physical intimacy to meet all of our relational and all of our emotional needs. Don't actually want to know the other person or know really anyone else all that deeply because I'm married and can have physical intimacy with this one person. And so that's going to meet all of my relational, all of my emotional needs. Again, it's going to fall woefully short. You are going to be disappointed if you're coming to your marriage relationship and the marriage bed expecting it to meet all of your needs. It's not built for that. I see a few of our senior saints out here nodding, right? With the experience of life, you look and you say, it is a wonderful gift. We don't ignore that. It's highlighted here as an incredible gift from the Lord. And yet, it is not meant to meet all of our needs, physically, relationally, or emotionally. Because perfection then becomes the standard, right? Anything less than perfection is not good enough. I've had many young men preparing for marriage come to me and ask, we're we're fighting about this, and we're, we're talking about this, and we disagree on this. I just don't know if we're compatible anymore. And I usually take a little pause and look up and say, I have bad news for you, but you're not. <laughs> right? like, you're not compatible. I don't know where we got this idea that like, compatibility is this thing. Like, if I can find the person, like, what's the goal here? Like, find the person who gets on my nerves the least and keep it that way? Like, that's, the, that's the goal of marriage? Like, you're not compatible. Compatibility is overrated. All right? My counsel to, to myself and to these young men is typically find the person who you're willing to be incompatible with. Find the person who you look and say, man, there are so many things that we're like incompatible on, but you know what? I want to go figure it out with him or her. Well, her if it's, yeah, you get it. Um, I want to go figure it out, right? (laughs) This is the person who I want to see the imperfections, see the ways that we don't click, and actually find what love is, right, which is covenant, which is agreeing that we're not going to be a compatible. There's going to be dozens of ways that we don't click, and yet we're going to push through those and find how we can. We're going to figure it out together. You are the person who I love enough to be incompatible with. That's marriage. That's love. That's covenant. That's commitment. May we not look for compatibility relationally, emotionally, sexually, whatever it is, as the preeminent and only category. 
Is she the woman that you're ready to say for better or worse with? For the ladies, is he the man who you're willing to say for better or for worse to? For relational needs to be met, right? For our emotional needs to be met, we need much more than simply a good marriage or a good sex life. For that, we need all kinds of things. We need community. We need deep friendships with people of the same sex. We need a healthy relationship with our Creator through Christ. We need dozens of things, right, to have a healthy relational and emotional life. Marriage can certainly be a part of that and should be a part of that in many cases, but it cannot bear the weight exclusively. In speaking with people who are attracted to the same sex, this is one of the questions I get a lot. If God is pointing me to celibacy, how will I experience intimacy? That's not fair. How come everybody else gets to have intimate relationships and I have to withhold myself from intimacy? And brothers and sisters, if our answer to that question is merely to point them to heterosexual marriage, we fall into the same trap that Solomon's calling out here. We have overvalued sex in that we are expecting it to meet all of their relational and emotional needs. And perhaps because we've expected it to meet ours. Marriage might indeed be one element. But remember, physical marriage is meant to point us to what? According to Ephesians 5. Physical marriage was designed to point us to our spiritual intimacy with Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Right? Wives, love your husbands as the church loves Christ. This is a mystery, Paul says, and it's a mystery that was unlocked in the revelation of Jesus. This is who marriage was always for, to point us to him, not the other way around. Right? So Jesus isn't given to point us to marriage. Right? Marriage is given us to point us to Jesus. As a matter of fact, two of our Two of the preeminent people of our faith, right? One was the Apostle Paul, who was a single man, who encouraged people insofar as they could to remain single like him. There's a lot of extra work there, but I'm just going to leave it there and let you do your own reading, right? Paul's encouragement many times was, I would encourage them to remain single. He has a clear category for single people. But let's go a little further. Our Savior was an unmarried man to his death, right? If... Marriage is necessary to have a fulfilled and emotionally complete life. We would then say that our Savior was an incomplete emotional person. We certainly wouldn't say that out loud, right? And yet, how often do we operate out of that mindset where we see a young single person, right? And we would say, yeah, well, they'll they'll finally find maturity once they get married. Or maybe as a young single person, we think, okay, yeah, like following Jesus, all that's important. But man, once I can get married, then I'll really take the next step. If we're seeing, it certainly is, again, a, a milestone. Don't hear, me say, don't hear me dismissing that. But it's not the only milestone. And it's not the only way to experience intimacy and depth of relationship. So much of our response to our sex-saturated culture has been to elevate sex, promising it'll be, quote, worth the wait. But we must also strive to connect the beauty of sex as one element of a deeper theology of intimacy. And our church must foster foster many avenues for deep platonic friendships and relationships. Sam Albury, himself a same-sex attracted celibate Christian, writes, Tragically, we live in a cultural moment in the West where we have funneled all of our thinking about intimacy into one expression of it, the romantic or sexual relationship. This is now virtually the only place where people believe they can find and express intimacy. May it not be so for us. How would you welcome a same-sex attracted person into your life group? 
How many single people do you have at your table monthly? To our young adults and other singles, how are you pressing into spiritual community during this season of your life? Are, are you just counting on the dating game to be the only way that you're going to find intimacy and relationship? What places in the church are you plugging into to experience deep community, deep commitment, aside from the hope to be married? We can overvalue or undervalue our own sexuality. And to escape these polar dangers, we must, as I said at the forefront, grasp the meaning of sex. Solomon has given us much wisdom in Proverbs 5. He's certainly given his son much wisdom, but even the wisest man up until this point who had ever lived, Solomon, fell short in this area. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30, verse 18, going through 19. As he reaches or nears his conclusion... Solomon admits, three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I cannot understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship at sea, and the way of a man with a young woman. Ultimately, the meaning of sex was a mystery to Solomon. It was too wonderful for him, he says. But with the benefit of knowing Christ, Detective Paul was on the case to solve the mystery and he did in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Paul wrote, Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. But here his implication here in verse 17. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit. With him. Anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. This was fuzzy to Solomon, but Paul has the advantage of Christ having cracked it. And that is this physical, what Pastor Matt Chandler calls the mingling of souls, right? As two become one, is a metaphor and a picture of a spiritual mingling of souls where two become one. It is a shadow of this cosmic reality that God came. To sacrificially give himself to unite us back to him. To bring us back to him. In other words, God, Christ did not come just to make you his subjects. Or just to make you his sheep. He also came to woo you, as odd as it sounds to our ears, as his lover. He has a passionate love for you and for me. He does not see us merely as people to be ruled or sheep to be herded but ultimately as lovers, to be passionately pursuing. You realize that's how God sees you this morning? This, what we see in Proverbs, what we see in Song of Solomon, what we see in the life of Christ, is a Savior who is not clinical with us, who does not keep us at an arm's length, but who desires to draw near to us, to know us intimately, and to know you intimately. You're good, you're bad, you're ugly, and everything in between. He knows, he cares, and he loves. Whether you, this morning, are in the twilight years of marriage, continuing to relearn how to enjoy the wife of your youth, or maybe you're a young woman wrestling with loneliness and the temptations that come along with it, or maybe you're somewhere in between. Wherever you are, know those two things this morning. First, you are not alone. And second, you are not without hope. 
as we sing, may we fall more deeply in love with the one who came first to love us. Let's do that together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are, Lord, often we admit uncomfortable thinking of you in these categories. Lord, we recognize that if we were in Genesis 1, this would be easier. Father, if sex and sexuality were uncorrupted by sin, unstained by the past and baggage that we bring to it, Father, it would be a lot clearer to us how you intimately love us with a passion that we can hardly comprehend. And yet, Father, we admit that with the baggage that we bring and the brokenness that we've experienced, Father, this is, this is difficult. We ask for your Spirit's help to open our eyes to see you as you are. Lord, give us quick repentance. Father, help us not to flee back into the darkness, but to come and stand in the light where you are, not ready to shame and rebuke, but as a father welcoming his son back home, Lord, ready to embrace us, ready for us to start again. So I pray that you would give courage, Father, to help us be transparent with one another, to find freedom, not just for our own physical intimacy, Father, but ultimately for the sake of our spiritual intimacy. We want to know you more deeply. Help us to do that this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.